Good morning. All right. Today I'm going to be doing a live with my friend Arden, Arden Comedy. He's out in Vegas now. And we are going to catch up with everyone. Hey, there you are. We are going to catch up. Hey, that's much, much easier. All right. Enough computer shenanigans. We're, we're just going to do this the easy way. That's perfectly yeah. fine. What is that saying? Blessed is he who is flexible for he rarely gets bent out of shape. <laughs> Something to that effect, yes. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. All right, guys, this is Arden. Arden, you're out in Vegas, right? Yes, I'm currently in Las Vegas. Don't tell the state of California. <laughs> That's so cool. You should tell us a bit about your move. You just did that recently, huh? Yeah, I'm testing it out. It's not a permanent move yet. Um, it was, you know, I got tired of being locked down in California on COVID. So I said, oh, Vegas is actually doing stuff. I got a few comedian friends who are doing mm -hmm. stuff on the strip. Uh, uh, Tom Baum, who does the comedy psychosis psychedelic show where he gets everybody oh. high on shrooms. Love and it. then like the whole country slammed down and mm -hmm. i said well i'm just gonna sit tight uh because it's a twofold concern for me with covid it's one i don't want to get the audience sick right. uh, that's number one for me if i got an audience member sick I, i'd hate that but two i'm also highly susceptible to this thing i'm a type right. blood i'm a stoner oh. so i'm smoking constantly um so it's just too many lung things that could go wrong mm -hmm. and uh i said you know what for right now, let me just focus on the cannabis side of things and connect with some of my friends and, yeah. uh, you know, see what's going on in that world for a bit while, you know, comedy is kind of not happening. Right. And I mean, in, social media is such a fascinating and amazing um, tool that, well, that can be used inappropriately, but during times like this where people can connect and get to get to hang out and know each other. Um, you said that you were worried about COVID as a cannabis smoker. And I would like to point out that recent research- Yeah, tell, tell us about that research because that research was interesting. I was reading up on that too. Right, so some recent research came out suggesting that cannabis interacts with some of the, the receptors that COVID interacts with. And that when you consume THC and CBD that it can, also, it can actually basically busy that receptor and block that receptor from uptaking the COVID, the COVID virus. And also cannabinoids are really, really good for your immune system. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I've been reading that, but you know, I'm, I'm also kind of a hypochondriac. <laughs> and it's, it's just one of those things where I'm like, I'm just going to avoid everything for a bit. You know what, though? I, I wouldn't call it hypochondriac, though. If the military taught me anything, it is that I'm, people aren't special like as an individual i was in the military during the last pandemic during swine flu and yeah everyone should just be as respectful and careful as possible yeah but now you're out of the military you've got the farm mm -hmm. it, does the farm have a name because i keep calling it the farm <laughs> Um, you know, I kind of named it at first. What? Everyone grab a joint. Yes, please hang out and smoke with us. My uh, friend Arden and I met on the internet and we've been conversing for a while now. And yeah. you're a very sweet person. You're very, um, I, I sometimes am put off by male comedians because, you know, they kind of, it's one thing to be self-depreciating about yourself, but, you know, they kind of tend to pick on 
people they shouldn't be like i always get annoyed when i see comedians doing sketches of like 15 year old girls and i'm like dude no that's not (laughs) so like i love your comedy and i love um i love what we get the chance to talk about like you're really into research and trying to do the best around everyone too and i think that's awesome well it's you know i spent a lot of time a lot of time i spent a year and a half doing pharmaceutical marketing i spent Mm. a few years doing legal marketing within you know top 200 law firms so dealing with a lot of pharmaceutical stuff as well and the ramifications thereof uh and so i got this sense of how to market for companies that are in a highly regulated space Mm -hmm. and then i fell in love with cannabis and Mm -hmm. i got out of marketing for firms and Mm -hmm. i said you know what what's cannabis doing and i sat on the sidelines for a while just observing and i didn't like what i was seeing Right. I was saying, they're not doing this right. But then right. I started doing more homework. And I realized you can't do it right. It's mm-hmm. almost impossible to do it right currently, because the way everything's set up, the channels we should have, and I say we because I'm trying mm-hmm. to market for cannabis people, mm-hmm. um, we should have access to are shut off to us. And the yes. ones that we shouldn't be touching are the only avenues available. All right. So mm-hmm. I always give this case example of Everyone was up in arms about you can't advertise cannabis on social media or any cannabis related products, Mm -hmm. which makes no sense to me because as a former marketer of pharmaceutical drugs, you have the ability to market down to the age and target demographic you want and exclude anybody outside of that. So if I can only sell my product in Mm -hmm. California because I'm a California cannabis producer, I can target just California just 21 plus, right? right. And, right. and that makes it totally, you know, it, it assuages all those fears of you're gonna market to kids. Yeah. But on the same token, I can buy a billboard in downtown San Francisco, as long as it's 100 yards from a school and put up my product as long as I have my dispensary number on there, right? Saying that I am a legit provider. Right. How does that make any sense? It doesn't. And so I said, okay, I need to get involved because one, I have to teach people how to work around the rules as they are right now, right. and I'm used to doing that. Right. But I also have to teach people content is king. You know, what you put out there and how you make your name is everything, your reputation and how people perceive you, especially when your target customer isn't who you think it is. And I want to talk about that for a second. Oh, I want to hear about it. That's Yeah. <laughs> so I am your target customer. Okay. Mm -hmm. In a very particular sense, rewind the clock five years from when I first started smoking cannabis. Okay. Uh, I had depression, anxiety. It was recommended by a doctor to me because I was living in San Francisco. They said, try cannabis. And I said, what do I do? And they said, (laughs) and so I was on my own, thrown to the wolves, walked Mm -hmm. into a dispensary at the mercy of the bud tender, Wound up buying edibles, wound up tripping way too hard the first time. Uh, I was high till noon the next day. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was like, well, it wasn't unpleasant because I did all my homework. I knew this could happen just to take a nap, et cetera, et cetera, you know, eat something. All all the things that the people that write the scare articles don't do when they overdose on edibles. right? Right, right. And then I started just, you know, figuring it out. You talk to friends, you, you get accustomed to things. But... I found that the information, it was lacking, right? It just, it not only in amount, but also in quality, 
Mm -hmm. I said, and then I went home for Thanksgiving one year. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I admitted that it was a cannabis user. And my family started, at, well, what do you buy and how you do and what's CBD and what's this and what's that? And I realized I, I got to be an educator. I mm -hmm. have to be someone that educates in the space because there are so many people out there who are interested in cannabis, mm -hmm. but have never been exposed to it. And they don't right. know where to start. And the barrier for entry is a lot higher than people think it is in right. terms of, you know, most people a puff on a joint and they're done. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you sell that person a product when you're selling eighths at a time? Right. Uh, right, right. And it's, yes, you have pre-rolls, but pre-rolls are in varying quality and everything else. They kind of suck. They kind of suck. And they kind of suck, you know, depending on who you get them from. Um, so there's a lot of education, just cannabis one-on-one that has to happen. Right. Absolutely. In terms of yeah, how to roll a joint. That's a big one. I, still suck, at, I still suck at rolling joints. So I get pre-roll cones and I just pack mm -hmm. them. But right. also to know that there are pre-roll cones and that you don't have to roll a joint. Right? And or, even honestly, understanding the finesse of packing your pre-roll, you can't just, just jam it in there too tight. And yeah, mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, what happens is it's not just a not unpleasant experience, but you're also wasting your money and your medicine. And that's not ideal at all. And, and at the end of the day, it is about delivering the medicine, right? It's about getting it to the consumer. So that's where I say all these companies, when I look at their social media, it's targeted to your daily user stoner who buys black market down the street. Mm -hmm. And I'm going, that's not your customer. Your customer is the nine to five, you know, soccer mom mm -hmm. who is stressed out with the kids and she doesn't want the neighbors to know because, right. you know, God forbid I, I become a stoner. So right. you have to talk to them in terms that they're going to understand where right. I have a friend who's a housewife. She watched me become a huge stoner. She mm -hmm. had, had anxiety issues and everything else. So she finally, cannabis went legal in Pennsylvania. She got mm -hmm. her card. And then she found out all the soccer moms are stoners. Right? They're all smoking every day mm -hmm. because they got to, you know, tamp down all that stuff that's going on as anyone would. Um, but they switched from being white wine people. Right? right. It used to be a glass of wine every day. Right. And then they stopped drinking because cannabis mm -hmm. just replaced it. Which is uh, which is a huge thing that we've experienced in Colorado and Colorado pre previous to the legalization, both recreational and medicinal use of cannabis. You could only buy liquor and real beer in liquor stores and the liquor stores got started getting shut down so just this past year they made it where grocery stores could sell regular beer and wine and stuff because none of these liquor stores could afford to stay open anymore yeah and that's you know i don't want to get into the political side of cannabis because right. that's not my area right You're right but it disheartens me every time i read an article about a state going legal and then they just start screwing it up from the go Right. I'm looking at New Jersey right now because I have a friend out there. She's a cannabis nurse. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Atlantic City, in typical mob fashion, wants to have an exclusive right to cannabis for the next five years. And it's like, what are you doing? Patient access. What, what are you trying to get it done? And it's all about the money. And are you talking about, there's a really great article. There's a really great article. It's called Legalize It All, <laughs> and it was written, it was, um, it was an opinion piece written on, in Harper's Magazine, um, mm. 
it was written recently, but it was talking about, um, it was talking about, okay, so back in the day after prohibition, the only people that could really afford to manufacture booze at this point was like Anheuser-Busch and um, different companies like that. And what they would do was they would build these bars and they would sell in line. They would manage the distribution and the states preferred it because they could control taxes easier. Right. Now they have, they have an actual um, word for it. Uh, vertical integration is what they call it. That's the cannabis version. That's yeah, the cannabis and, version. Yeah. And there's a, there's a, there was Tied Houses. Tied Houses was the, the booze version after prohibition. And um, they found that in states yeah that 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 allows for large monopolies and strong monopolies and strong monopolies can sell mass quantities for much cheaper yeah and then in states with weak monopolies they have huge chunks of the population that just don't even drink yeah and but the problem with vertical integration in the cannabis industry just like the the in-houses of the post-prohibition days is it only allowed for people with deep pockets to operate it yeah. didn't allow for craft growers it didn't allow for craft hops growers you had to have the like coors owns these contracts all over colorado over right. hop and you would have to have a contract before you could start growing and it screwed all of the growers over and it only helped the companies and it only helped them if they got to sell in-house and in the cannabis industry, that's inherently sexist and racist because women and minorities have only been property holders for how many how many decades now versus mm, four decades <laughs> versus four centuries of white landowners and stuff. Right. So it really hurts. It really hurts people, but then it also hurts the consumers. But then it also doesn't address the fact that heavier consumers would. Okay, it's funny. They say that 20% of heavy drinkers, I just talked about this on my, my story, of binge drinkers, binge drinkers make up 20% of the drinking population. Yeah. But they buy 50% of the alcohol. Yeah. Stoners, daily stoners, binge stoners make up 27% of the stoner community. And we consume 67% of the Yeah. <laughs> is this being sold but that's because in other states you guys can't grow ca your own cannabis and so a lot of the people who end up being the heavy chronic users are people who are using it and replacing it of medicines for chronic illnesses in reality in yeah. alcohol that is not the case <laughs> yeah well you bring up a couple interesting points i want to address because um a friend of mine uh you know i'm currently unemployed right mm -hmm. uh and a friend of mine said, well, why don't you deliver cannabis? And I said, I can't. And they mm -hmm. said, why not? And I said, well, I'd have to work for a company mm -hmm. that's already established and drive mm -hmm. one of their vehicles, et cetera, et cetera. And they said, well, you have that great minivan. And I said, yeah. And it doesn't pass state regulations for mm -hmm. storage and security and GPS tracking and this and that. And they said, what? And I said, yeah, I need $150,000 if I just want to have one delivery vehicle. And I'm not even guaranteed the permits at that point. I could just or be work. flushing that money down the or drain. Work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and they said, what? I said, yeah, in cannabis, you need gobs of money to get started. And 
it's because of, you know, going back to prohibition, it's the scare tactic. We got to keep people that aren't supposed to be in the industry out of the industry. Mm -hmm. um, but the funny thing is you talked about home growing, right? And I said, that's, that's the, um, uh, the straw man argument, right? The, the boogeyman that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Because what they want to say is if we allow people to grow their own, everyone's mm -hmm. going to grow their own and it's going to be a huge problem. Mm -hmm. right? And I say, no, because right. just like I'm not making bathtub gin and my mm -hmm. neighbor's not making bathtub right. gin <laughs> and my neighbor, neighbor, right? there's like five people in the country making bathtub gin right now. Right. And they're all like, you never heard of them because they're not selling to anybody. Right. Uh, because they're consuming <laughs> their own. And so this idea that, you know, I'm going to be able to grow six plants and then supply my neighborhood. No, mm -hmm. right? Forget it. And plus, right. I don't have the time. I don't have right. the amount of weeks it takes to grow cannabis. Right? Mm -hmm. I don't have the space it requires and the air filtration because if I have neighbors, I got to consider them. Right. Uh, so there's a lot of these boogeymen that the media loves to play with and mm -hmm. keep shoving down our throats. And anybody who actually works and lives in cannabis understands that it's a joke, right? It, it, it's the old reefer madness arguments coming back again because one, they want to sell clickbait. And mm -hmm. two, they really don't want people to understand this industry, right? Yeah. It's just like banking or anything else. The more obtuse it is, the fewer people try and get yeah. into it. Right. And the less people with eyes on making criticisms about what should be going on. Now, for me, obviously, outdoor growing, I have a small, small farm. It's eight acres. I live outside of city limits. So growing for me is not an expensive or tedious task. But if you even live inside city limits, you have to have enclosures of some kind, mm -hmm. locks and all kinds of stipulations. And your neighbor could be a cop. And yeah. no, thank you. <laughs> yeah. And, and New Jersey, you know, they've got a huge problem with the not my backyard because no one wants to deal with the smell of a cannabis farm being down the street. Uh, and it, it's just so fun because I grew up in Jersey, right? I've yeah. got a soft spot for the state and how corrupt right. it is. Uh, and so, you know, I see where it's going. I'd love to go back sometime and be welcome in the state as a cannabis <laughs> consumer, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. Uh, so, you know, then I look at a place like Oklahoma, and that looks like a model that seems to be working from what I've read. Again, mm -hmm. the surface level as it comes across my desk. Right. But what they did was they kept it medicinal. Mm -hmm. They kept it, you require a card, mm -hmm. but they made it, you could stub your toe and get a card. Mm -hmm. uh, and that kept everybody tracked in the system. Mm -hmm. And then they said, if you want to be a grower, be a grower. We don't care. Right? Mm -hmm. As long as you pay us taxes, we don't care pretty much. There was no huge bar to entry, no huge exorbitant fees, none of that right. stuff. And so it's become the Wild West again. Right? Right. Uh, and that gives me some hope that, you know, there are some places that, you know, you think Oklahoma, right next to Texas, red states, you know, cannabis. No, but they, they said, hey, look at the taxes. Look at what's doing. Right. And honestly, that's an open has... space it's a really great state to grow in. It's mm -hmm. going to, you know, when people think of cannabis coming out, like good cannabis or outdoor grown coming out of certain states, they're thinking about Washington and Colorado. Oklahoma is like a pretty, so yeah, I feel like some of the farmers and some of the people were like, we kind of have great conditions for it. We can literally have a tourism and a reputation and all this stuff 
But what's crazy too, and what a lot of farmers can't ignore is cannabis isn't just some cash crop like corn that just decimates the soil. It actually repairs soil. It, it is an incredible, it's humbling how cool that plant is. Well, that's, that, that's you know, we've been abusing crop rotation for so long because cheap nitrates, right? We figured out fertilizer and that was the end of it. And we didn't learn from the Dust Bowl. I don't know how we didn't, but we did. <laughs> and so I'm looking at cannabis as, yes, a, a, a healing plant for mm -hmm. the, the ground. Um, plus, it's, you know, an industrial material mm -hmm. hemp grown uh, for various uses. Food fiber shelter. Yeah. Uh, bioplastics are starting to be used. I'm not a fan of plastic in general, even bioplastic, because right. it doesn't biodegrade right. But hey, you know, anything to replace what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, so there's a lot of hurdles that are, you know, regulatory for no reason. Uh, and it doesn't seem to matter how many elections we have uh, and who's in power, because until the money's in their eyes, you know, right. uh, up for grabs. Ooh. It, ooh. <laughs> I just brought up a really good, um, oh, good, good. something that I was talking about. Okay. So the Department of Justice just wrapped, wrapped up suing five big pharma companies to include yes. Johnson Johnson and Purdue Pharma. Yeah. And part of the agreement under P President Trump's Department of Justice was that these companies had the these families had to absolve themselves of the companies and the United States would take over is taking over the manufacturing and distribution of these oxycontin and hydrocodone prescriptions what is so fucked up about this already is the fact that johnson and johnson purdue pharma and these other pharma companies could not even manufacture and distribute these drugs unless they got the go-ahead by gram from the department or for, from the drug enforcement agency the drug enforcement agency is the agency that does the evaluation of the need of these drugs in the first place. And what is really fucking crazy about it is from 2000 and two, oh God, it's horrible. It's like from 2005 to 2011 or something like that. Yeah. They gave consent to these companies to produce 36 times the amount of hydro or oxycontin needed in 12 times the amount of hydrocodone needed yep. they in 2011 in one year they allowed for the enough hydrocodone and oxycontin to be manufactured that every single american adult could be medicated 24 7 for a month straight yep and the department of justice did not hold the the dea accountable and then they absorbed these companies so that the federal government is benefiting from the opioid crisis. Yeah, yeah. And, and then at some point, they'll break down and sell the cure. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, it, it's so I look at what happened with uh, cannabis and pharmaceuticals recently, it, about 10 years back, I think. I don't know. My, my memory's fuzzy on this. You'll know it better than I do. But I. A pharmaceutical company looked into cannabis and created a synthetic cannabinoid mm -hmm. for treatment of epilepsy. Mm -hmm. 
when the original thing they had was good enough at treating the thing and the yeah. thing they derived was about 10% effective right. compared to, you know, how effective cannabis was. Right. And the reason why it's about 10% effective is because they're using um, ethanol and dose stabilizers like tweenini and stuff as yeah. the carrying devices for these substances. I've read a lot of research that people have used to um, reinforce the Nixon era and earlier, you know, cannabis, uh, what, are they, what do you call it? The reefer madness or whatever, talking yeah. about it fucks up your, your memory and makes yeah. you crazy and all these dumb things. And um, yeah, all these researchers were saying they were non-biased, they were publishing for the government, but they were using vehicles and injecting rats and mice with solutions of synthetic cannabinoids ethanol and mm -hmm. this stuff called like tween 80 which is uh, turns out is really fucking toxic too so it's oh, like of course it is. <laughs> and part of it is i mean you have to imagine and the federal government actually owns a patent on cannabinoids on all 140 cannabinoids claiming that they're antioxidants and neuroprotectants in the meantime they're claiming that cannabis has no known medical benefits but you can't you can't very well patent plants outside of that. Yeah. You can well, you can patent claims that they do things, but you cannot own a patent on a plant. So that's why well, I, so many companies are going for synthetic. But then they also claim that the main problem with plant-based medicine is biodiversity and you won't get consistent dosage. You don't always need fucking consistent dosage. No. Life is not always <laughs> intense, you know, like sometimes you need more help with anxiety and sometimes you need more help with pooping or whatever, but it's yeah. not, it's more intuitive than that. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's the analytical clinical, you know, l let's sterilize everything and normalize everything to a graph, right? right. And if it doesn't fit the graph, well, it's an outlier, it doesn't count anyway. The uh, other half of it is the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church's disdain for psychedelics. Oh yeah, even though we've <laughs> been finding more and more evidence that Catholicism started through psychedelics, so <laughs> <laughs> like they keep finding THC residue on altars all over the early Christian world, and it's oh, like, oh, huh, they found I wonder what DMT. They, were up to. they found DMT. Yeah sarcophagi and Egyptian and Egyptian tombs and stuff too because it's an extracted product it's not it's not a it it's an isolated extracted product process similar to cannabis extra right. cannabis extractions it's from a root materials so it's just like you know they they think that the philosopher's stone was psychedelic truffles they think oh, that, you know, these elixirs of life are actually psychedelics that give you insight that you know help you well, they recently um somebody was on joe rogan and uh he was talking about psychedelics and early religion and they recently broke open some wine vessels because wine wasn't wine, it wasn't an alcoholic beverage, it was a concoction of psychedelics mixed with other spices and things. And that's what they found in it. And it was like, oh, we have to look at the literature again, because all the references that were made to certain mm -hmm. drinks and beverages, mm -hmm. they have to relook at because all, we knew this and then we suppressed the knowledge and then we right. forgot. Right. Right? It's the forgetting part and then the rediscovery, mm -hmm. which, 
as you've been finding through your research, we mm -hmm. did all this already. Right. It's just we have to do it again for no reason. Yeah, um, there was a psychedelic. Well, it's not for no reason. Well, no, there are really heinous reasons, actually. You know, one, um, there, you know, there is government release documents where they talk about, um, you know, remote, remote viewing via telepathy and all kinds of other stuff. And they talk about, you know, the CIA did a lot of research with psychedelics and oh, yeah. that, that movie drugs. Men Who Stare at Goats was based on a true story, which honestly, I did not expect that movie to be so funny. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't that enjoy that might, one. That might be, uh, that main character, that might be my favorite movie of his. It was so ridiculous. I loved it. Uh, Ewan McGregor, right? Yes, and... Uh, George Clooney. Yes, Clooney. That was probably my favorite Clooney movie ever. Yeah. I, I did not expect to laugh so hard. That, so that's the the kind of military slash uh, intelligence view of drugs and how they could use them and weaponize them. And this, it's just so fascinating. Oh yeah. That I think you know, in in my own way of looking at it that a lot of the reason they stopped going down those paths was because they figured out it was only beneficial, right? It, it was to only individual, to the individual. Yeah. They, they, dis they discovered that psychedelics made people less perceptive to persuasion and that's not ideal in the military. My yeah. husband said it was suppressed for us by the Catholic church and he's right. The Catholic church and the Roman rule. I mean, you can't pick up a Bible unless you've read the history of humans especially around 300 AD but after Jesus died during Christian Christians fight um you know there was the Caligula had a, mm -hmm. a court ruling and essentially he said that anything that doesn't fit in the Roman ways of thinking in Christianity they don't like they had a court they had court. They looked at the books. They were like, we don't, you can't have these books if you want to practice Christianity. You can't do these things if you want to practice Christianity. This is the only way. And we know in documented history, we're missing a ton of books written by women. Yeah. They were probably, a lot of them were probably tripping fucking balls. Oh. <laughs> you know, even uh, Hildegard de Bingen. Yeah. That lady was probably tripping balls. Mm -hmm. Well, <laughs> it's in the ancient mysteries which was apparent from the gospel of thomas yeah and jesus traveled throughout the middle east too and supposedly met up with different leaders from you know taoists and buddhists and whatever religions and yeah it, it's you know we a lot of what's happening right now is we're reconnecting with each other right well, uh, and so as a result, we're starting to share knowledge that hasn't been widely shared in a long time, right? And people are okay. starting to key into certain things. Right. Uh, and then, you know, so it, for me, one of the problems with the cannabis argument, pro-cannabis, right, mm -hmm. has always been, it's been adjacent to psychedelics, mm -hmm. right? Because I don't consider cannabis a psychedelic. I, right. I, I it's psychoactive. It, it's psychoactive, but it's not mm -hmm. psychedelic unless right. you take huge quantities. Right. Um, and so what quickly happens is it gets lumped in with the psychedelic argument. And the psychedelic argument 
instantly becomes an argument about going crazy. Right. Uh, psychosis being induced, all these things, blah, right. blah, blah. Right. Uh, but if you look at the research, if you look at the numbers and everything else, which you have, well, yeah. uh, it, you know, you find the incidents are, are, are very small. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, it's no worse than anything else we do to ourselves. Right? Well, if you look at the side effects of taking most antidepressants and most anti-anxiety drugs, oh, they're awful. They have some pretty heavy, heavy, heavy side effects too, including increased re risk in suicide. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense because you can't just not test someone's baseline hormones mm -hmm. and give them pills. And horm hormones are more than just mood and stabilization; mm -hmm. they're function and survival that's what makes them hormones vitamin d just got reclassified to hormone yeah. um the the com uh, the conversations of about it like triggering something like psychosis one it plays on the misunderstanding of mental health issues yeah. and what psychosis really is and then two all of the fucking prescriptions out there can induce those things i, I had Effexor was originally designed in a lab as a fifth generation antihistamine. So like Benadryl. Yeah. They tested it on psychosis patients back in the time of asylums, which are illegal now. So mm -hmm. they tested it on psychosis patients against their will and found the psychosis patients, which is like less than 0.1% of Americans were having yeah. anxiety. So people that are cognitively different than us had 10% less anxiety. I took Effexor for two weeks after one of my friends in the army committed suicide. Mm -hmm. And within two weeks, I had serotonin poisoning, which oh. is like poisoning instead of overdose. Yeah. I was incredibly ill. And I had withdrawal symptoms and was just so sick for the next two months. I lost 18 pounds in less oh. than two weeks. And I started hallucinating. <laughs> Because there was a point where my body was so out of whack that I couldn't sleep for four days. And, and I've never really had, I've had, you know, I've had like nightmares and yeah. nights where I have trouble sleeping, but I've never really had that much trouble sleeping. And it was insane. And then doctors want to call it serotonin <laughs> instead of an overdose. Yeah. Now, psychosis is incredibly rare. It was a very scary time. I remember sitting on the corner of my bed in my bedroom and, be, and I'm a psychology major. So, you know, you wonder, do crazy people know they're going crazy? Yeah. And I sat there, literally, I, it felt like I could feel my brain unraveling. And I was like, yeah. I'm never going to be myself again. I am yeah. genuinely afraid that, like, I've lost my mind psychosis is caused by brain damage it's it's um statistically most likely caused by when the when the fetus was developing the mom was really sick and couldn't take proper time off mm -hmm. another indication is the the cleanliness of the sleeping environment of the baby mm -hmm. and whether or not again they had the resources to actually have downtime if the mom got flu or even when it, postpartum and um it typically gets triggered around 18 
when mm. stress in life gets exponentially harder and life gets yeah. a little bit realer and it's t it typically begins between 18 and 21 it's not permanent for everyone yeah. it could be very temporary it could be induced by different malfunctions in the human body and medicines that people are on but if like the health and u.s health and human services claimed when they got awarded their patents from the u.s trademark and patent office claiming that all antioxidants are neuroprotectants and antioxidants it is a legitimate treatment for psychosis yeah not in clinical settings and dose dependent they've already moved it along pretty far it is a legitimate treatment yeah. for the underlying causes of psychosis yeah it's there's something about psychedelics, you know, again, I've never experienced it. I want to, it's on my list mm -hmm. of life experiences. Um, mm -hmm. And that's because I had such an awakening with cannabis. Mm -hmm. right? um, I was going through a very difficult time in my life. And, you know, I, I was drinking myself to death. I mean, mm -hmm. I was putting myself to sleep with half a bottle of bourbon a night. Uh, and so uh, when a doctor said, why don't you try cannabis? I said, eh, can't hurt. Um, <laughs> but, Marty, this self-destructive behavior, why not? Yeah, why not? Uh, <laughs> but the thing was, I made a mental choice. And this comes from my upbringing, right? Where because of how I viewed cannabis, even up until that point in my life, when I was about to try it, I said, I can't be a two-time loser, mm -hmm. quote unquote. Okay, these are old words, so don't take them to heart. But right. I can't be a two-time loser. I can't be an alcoholic and a pothead, right? right. I can choose one or the other. So I said, <laughs> let me try pot for a minute to see if it helps with all this crazy. Um, and we'll stop the drinking. Right. And I stopped drinking. I started smoking cannabis on the regular. Uh, and after a couple of months, I went back into a bar, my favorite bar, or my favorite drink which was a bourbon on the rocks same <laughs> i had one sip i put the drink down and i walked out of the bar for good like i was done drinking i didn't right. want to drink anymore right i uh, and i realized that the only reason i ever enjoyed the drinking experience was because it doled all the stuff i was trying to deal with mm -hmm. right? and what cannabis helped me do was face it kind of head on without getting overwhelmed but also not being totally you know, sedated by right. food, yeah. right? Uh, and my thinking cleared up. I got into therapy. Uh, I've been in therapy. I continue to be in therapy. And I had a really bad patch for a while. I wound up getting hospitalized. That was 5150, mm -hmm. they call it in California. Right, uh, right. Yeah, where it's involuntary. I was, uh, mm -hmm. It was, I was that person. Self-harm to self, right? Yes, yeah. And I just got to give a little context for how bad I got uh, mm -hmm. because I wasn't dealing with my problems. I, right. I, I was, you know, just kind of pushing them aside and mm -hmm. I'm in therapy. It's fine, but I still wasn't getting to where I had to get to. Right. And I had a lot of life circumstances that were also adding mm -hmm. to my stress and anxiety. Uh, and I was literally walking down the street, being that crazy person screaming at themselves mm -hmm. and punching the shit out of myself. Uh, and when I got home, I had locked myself in the bathroom, mm -hmm. took my belt to myself, uh, 
and also continued to beat myself up. My roommate called the cops. Mm -hmm. I was sitting on the porch outside, just, you know, trying to get out of this headspace. Mm -hmm. And that's when I hear an authority figure saying my last name. <laughs> and oh, I don't yeah. use my last name, right. right? And I put down my phone very slowly because it was a black object in my hand and I assumed mm -hmm. it was the cops. Right. And sure enough, there is an officer with a beanbag shotgun in my face saying, would you mind coming over here for a second, standing up against this wall and putting on these handcuffs? And, uh, you know, I complied. And then they uh, found all the bruises and the marks I had done to myself. And uh, they said, yeah, we just want to take you and meet a few people. I said, fine, whatever, you know. Uh, wound up being put in a holding cell by myself, uh, sat in there for a little bit until the people that deal with this came in to come talk to me. And uh, at, they talked to me for a minute, and it was at that point I realized I was going in. I was going into the hospital, which was my biggest fear in life. I never wanted to go there. Right. Uh, I, I never wanted to be that person. So I went, and I was, you know, the whole experience is traumatic for a lot of people. For me, I'm a comedian. I laughed it off but you're literally the crazy person in handcuffs standing in the ER waiting for a bed with right. a couple officers with you and everyone's looking at you and you're like, meh, whatever, you know? Uh, and then the whole time they're trying to keep you compliant, right? Mm -hmm. So they tell you whatever you want to hear. For me, it was, yeah, you're going to be out of here. We're just checking you out. You're going to be out of here. Well, that's till they can transfer you to the actual psych ward in a whole nother facility somewhere. So around 4 a.m. they transfer me, 7 a.m. wake up call, and then every minute of that day I spent trying to get out of there. And uh, because I know all the right things to say, you know, dealing with psychological stuff, doing enough reading, uh, I told him, look, whatever it takes to get me out of here today, great, because I got a show at Flappers in Hollywood mm -hmm. at nine o'clock. Like, I got a thing to go to, something to live for. Can we get me out of here? Mm -hmm. And they said, sure, you know, uh, as long as you go on the pills, right? So Lexpro, whatever, fine. Uh, so I was out within 24 hours, you know, in and out, no 72 hour hold, still on my record, still can't own a fire firearm for the next three years and change, uh, you know, but at least I wasn't in the hospital anymore. Yeah. Uh, then I had to wake up to, I'm really sick. Like, mm -hmm. and that was in September of last year. Mm -hmm. All right, so not this past September, but okay. a, a year ago. Uh, when I went to the hospital, aside from all the damage I had done to myself physically, I weighed 116 pounds. Uh, like my brain wasn't working right. Like right. I was malnourished. I had done so much shit to myself without even realizing it. Right. And that's part of the disease is you don't see a lot of it, right? You see parts of it, you don't see all of it. That's why people on the street, you ask them if they want help, they don't see anything wrong with what they're doing, right? right? Everything seems normal. Right. Uh, so then in October, right before uh, Halloween of that year, I got mugged. <laughs> I had three guy, uh, two guys and a girl jump me. Uh, and I wound up fighting them all off. Uh, I got the ever-living shit beat out of me, but yeah. kept all my stuff. And I wound up actually mugging them. Uh, the main attacker, I got his cell phone. He's in jail right now. I put him behind bars. Uh, 
And so the thing was, I should not have fought. <laughs> I should right. have just handed over my shit, whatever. But I was in a bad spot. I was still right. on a, I don't care about my life. You, you want my stuff? Fight me for it. I don't give a right. shit. Uh, and he had threatened to kill me with a gun and then a knife. And then he just used his fist, but he was wearing improvised brass knuckles. Well, still and, three on one. That's yeah. And it was him, his girlfriend, some other random homeless guy. Ton tons of people watching it happen. Someone even screamed me out, stop hitting that poor woman because my hair's in my face and everything. <laughs> and someone else yells out, no, that's a dude. And I'm like, is anybody going to step in and like try and stop? No. Uh, <laughs> so uh, that happened. And then, you know, I just kind of continued to be in this state of, okay, I'm on the pills. I'm pretty level. Right. But my life's not getting any better. Right. And then I started doing therapy. And it was going okay. But it wasn't until I uprooted myself from all my circumstances, where I was yeah. living, who was hanging around, all that stuff, and literally sat for the past six months in Orange County in isolation in a nice trailer home to myself. I had a friend who needed someone to watch the property while the world burned. And, uh, and so for six months, all I did was therapy every two weeks via mm -hmm. teleconference mm -hmm. and smoke a ton of pot because, <laughs> because I stopped taking the pills right. uh, because I ran out of medication and I also ran out of medical insurance. Right. Uh, so I tapered myself off because mm -hmm. I read up on how to do it, tapered myself off, counted out all the pills till the last one I had, and then I was off it and then just on pot. And sure enough, once all that was out of my system, and I was just smoking pot, my thinking became even clearer, right? Uh, yeah, I had to deal with a lot more highs and lows and oscillation. Right. right. But I was more myself. And because I wasn't in that chaotic situation every day, I could mm -hmm. handle myself. Like I could deal with right. the emotions that were coming up. I could, you know, just kind of function, right? What I did to myself without realizing it was, I put myself in a nice sanitarium, right? Where all you do all day is you wake up, you follow a schedule and you go to bed. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did for six months. And sure enough, I got to a point where I said, oh my God, like there's a lot of stuff I've been missing and I want for myself and I need to start working towards that, mm -hmm. right? But there was this huge journey to get there. Right. And pills were part of it mm -hmm. and they helped in a way, right? They helped mm -hmm. keep me stable while I was dealing with a catastrophe. Mm -hmm. But had I just extricated myself earlier, yeah. it probably wouldn't come to pills. Right. But, you know, they were a safety net for me. So I'm not saying that pills aren't something that people can utilize. Right. I'm just saying they're not great for everybody. Right? When right. I was 16 on Prozac, oh right. my God, I was a mess. Like, it was awful. Exactly. Right? So yeah, it, it's purity in your life, hormones, everything has to be taken into consideration. But, you know, I'm glad I was able to find the support I needed when I really, really needed it and get out of that circumstance. Mm -hmm. Because had I just let it continue, I wouldn't be talking to you today. Right. Like, I wouldn't right. be here. I'd be done. That's, I mean, that's insane. But there is something about actually slowing down where you can't run away from thinking about your issues with work and you can't run away from thinking about your issues with alcohol. And well, that, and that, that for me, my issues were so fundamental 
-hmm. I couldn't worry about a job. Like COVID was the best thing that ever happened to me in a way because I lost my job, right? So now I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to worry about one aspect of my life that was already hard enough to control, right? Right. I don't have to worry about going anywhere Mm because there's nothing to do, right? So it really, (laughs) it narrowed everything down for me, Mm -hmm. right? But for a lot of people, it expanded that horizon of uncertainty and things. So now their lives are more catastrophic than mine, right? right? So I'm doing great, but I feel for anybody that's struggling right now because it is a really hard time, trust me. Yeah. I have friends, my best friend, she's a she's a registered nurse down in Florida and her nursing home is just getting ravaged and they're basically oh. making these nurses go mm-hmm. into these wards, stay in these hallways from the minute they get to work with all their PPE on. They're even making them eat their lunches in the hallways. Oh, God. And they can't leave their hallway until <laughs> they leave for the end of the day and like it's just, I mean, people with jobs are getting railed. People yeah. without jobs are getting railed. People, people who have never spent time with themselves. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about people that we all think are like highly happy, productive, whatever people <laughs> that right now don't have the ability to distract themselves like they normally would, and yep. they are struggling. I, I, I have so many friends that are freaking out because their MO is travel, right? Time, mm-hmm. Times get yeah. struggled. Mm-hmm. Just get out of town, go away. Mm-hmm. And they can't leave, they can't get away from it. And they're going nuts, they're going backwards. Uh, it's... You sharing that story, man. Yeah, Arden, we really do appreciate you. Oh, thank you. That story. Yeah. Um, well, my whole thing, why I got into comedy, right, was because I fundamentally, you know, it, all comedians are broken on some level. <laughs> and, and my thing is, I just want to make everybody happy. All right. Mm-hmm. Because there was one person in my life I could never make happy. And that was my mother. Because she too okay. is sick. All right? mm-hmm. But her sickness, unfortunately, did a lot of damage to me. Right. Uh, and I still carry that to this day. Right. It's getting easier to carry, but it's still there. Right? Yeah. And so I just through my stories and my comedy and everything I do, I just want to show people that it does get better. Mm -hmm. And I sympathize with the problems you're having. And I'm hoping by doing what I'm doing, I can just make you forget it for five minutes. Or at least make them not feel alone. Yes. Yeah. And and so that's why you never see me doing political stuff because it's divisive, Mm -hmm. right? I'm trying to be inclusive, not exclusive, right? Right. and I'm always trying to be upbeat. If you ever mm-hmm. see me be super duper cynical without some sort of bright side, I'm probably depressed. I'm probably yeah. dealing with something. Hit me up, make sure I'm okay. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it is, it is um, I can't think of her name. There's a famous comedian. They, they might go by the them pronouns now, but they were talking about how it was kind of the end of their tour because they've made a career out of self-depreciation. Yeah, and they didn't think that they would be able to carry on with comedy and not be tearing themselves down constantly and contributing to their mental health issues. I think um, there's there's even been comedians and stuff that have talked about their experiences with psychedelic oh. and like being afraid of being healed to any degree because you know oh it's my sparkle. <laughs> yeah, well, 
Uh, someone who actually, when I was at one of my low points, was a source of inspiration was Maria Bamford. Yeah. Because uh, yeah. she got committed. Right? And she, I think she's been committed a few times. And mm -hmm. that's where I looked at her and I said, look, you can come back. Nobody cared. When she went right. in, no one gave a shit. It was, right. are you okay? Mm -hmm. Can we help you? Right? It wasn't like, oh, you're a pariah. We're done with you. Right. And so I look at her and her most recent special that I just watched on Net, uh, Amazon Prime. Uh, she talks about she's been in such a good place for so long. She worried that she couldn't do stand-up anymore. Mm -hmm. She was like, do I have anything to talk about? It's one of her funny specials because mm -hmm. she's in a good headspace, because she right. can perform. And that's and where herself the, to the largest degree that she's been able to, instead of, you know, putting that shield of trauma and, you know, cause this is trying to be funny. I put a shield up of my trauma all the time to oh, yeah. like, try to be funny. And then all of a sudden everyone gets really quiet and they're like, that's not funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, dating as a comedian can be a pain in the ass uh, <laughs> because we call them normies, right? It, whenever okay. we try and date anybody who has a regular job and does a normal uh -huh. thing, it doesn't go well. Uh, you know, but also dating is kind of a nice mirror sometimes if you can mm -hmm. step back and take perspective. Mm -hmm. Because I had somebody say something on a date that I still think about, right? Which is, are you always so self-deprecating? Like, can you mm -hmm. stop for a second? And I realized at that point in my life, I couldn't. Like, I mm -hmm. couldn't stop shitting on myself because that was the headspace I was in. Right. right? So I've got a new character, Saki, um, yes. who's literally a sock. And I talked with my therapist about it. I said, look, I've been doing a live stream with Saki. Mm -hmm. And I talked to Saki like it's another person. Mm -hmm. And what I found was Saki was really my inner monologue. Right. Mm -hmm. It was whatever was in my head at the time. Mm -hmm. And one night it was a beautiful interaction where we were talking about the worry with what was going on with the world. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, it's just a lack of imagination. We just got to imagine better. And it was this yeah. kind of upbeat, fun thing. But then I tried to do it another night and I wasn't in a great headspace and Saki started talking shit to me. And I was like, holy crap, this is how I talk to myself. Like, this is the mental illness that I have where I can tear myself apart for no reason over nothing, right? And so that's where you know, and she's like, you did that on a live stream? Like, that's really open. I was like, yeah, I'm an open book. I, this is yeah. what I do. Um, but she's like, patients won't even, you know, do that. Where, you right. know, it's a therapy thing. You're just voluntarily doing this on a live stream. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, because again, it's showing people that, hey, let's just be silly. Let's just have fun. Right. And let's confront the uncomfortable feelings we're having in a comfortable way. Yeah. It's humor and creativity and patience. <laughs> Hopefully. Yes. I was actually just talking about that on, um, I was doing a live stream last night and I was talking about, I was in this like elite military training program where oh, we yeah. have sports psychiatrists and psychologists and different things that we had to do while we were under under training because we were also being researched like yeah. women's capabilities were being researched at this time too and um i would always say self-deprecating stuff and i was like one of the lowest ranking in the program and i got that you know i was with like west point graduates so i felt very insecure and i felt very out of place and um 
my my therapist would have me had me keep hash marks on my hand on all the negative internal things that I was thinking about myself, the negative internal things I was saying out loud. Mm -hmm. And then also what I, if I thought something negative or critical, unless it was, you know, like clearly work and safety related. Like if I was catching myself critiquing another female that made me feel insecure Mm -hmm. externally or internally, I would keep track of that too. And over a course of several weeks, I realized I'm a fucking bitch to myself. I say shit to myself that I would never say to even people I disliked. And certainly not to a friend that I cared about. And that is definitely not, yeah, that's definitely, it was like, I was trying so hard to overcome all these obstacles that had been placed in front of me in front of a young age and trauma. But I learned all to say all these really negative things about myself. And I was always low key undermining my own success and my own happiness and my own image of my, what I could do, what, yeah. what I was fucking capable of. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a nice traumatic story that is, <laughs> uh, there's a point to it though. It's not, okay. it's, it's not just being traumatic to be traumatic. So no. uh, I had a track meet, I think I was in the eighth grade uh, mm-hmm. and it was a big deal. I was in private school at this point uh, and it was a big deal because it was like all the private schools in that area coming together for some big meet. And what made it particularly big to me was uh, my mother actually showed up. Normally she'd be at home pretty sauced and uh, you know, but she came for whatever reason. I have no idea. <laughs> Probably guilt. <laughs> well, no, I, I don't, it, it's a lot of weird things and I'll never know because she never got help. Unfortunately. I'm sorry. Uh, well, we all make our own life choices, you know? Um, but she came. And my first event of the day was the long jump. And uh, I foot faulted twice. So I only had one more attempt to go. Right. So I went over to my mother for words of encouragement. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, mom, what do you think? And she said, you're going to fuck it up just like everything else. <laughs> and uh, I was like, all right. So I used that as a little bit of fuel. And uh I set the school record for the long jump that day. I set the school record for the high jump that day. And I was in the anchor leg of the four by 400 and took us from last to third uh, in the anchor leg. So, uh, you know, I make the joke on stage because I don't remember exactly what happened. I said, uh, well, what do you think now? And she would respond, uh, two golds and a bronze ain't three golds. Uh, But it was, you know, that kind of, I, you know, that kind of shit got into my head, right? Where it's just like anything in my life, I'm just going to fuck it up, right? And a lot of the times I would use that kind of weird rage thing to fuel my success, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't always breed success. A lot of times it breeds failure, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what you don't realize is that negative self-messaging. And it also becomes uh, not uh, infectious or contagious, but it becomes a, a barrier, where people just don't want to get close. They don't want to deal with it, right? Yeah, you succeed and you're great at what you do, but you're miserable to be around, right? That's really well said. Yeah, you just described me in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's the thing. It's, 
we can come out of that. We can see what's going on and we can start to be kinder to ourselves, right? right. And, but it's a process, you know, to this day. Saki will remind me that I'm not having a good day. Uh, and, you know, you have to make a choice. Do you stop in that moment and say, let me change this behavior right now, or you just let it continue? Uh, but that's a daily thing for me. From the moment I wake up, you know, those depressive voices could be there telling me I'm terrible, right? And I got to be like, no, that's not today. Today I feel good about me and what's going on. The sun is up. Birds are singing. I have nothing to be sad about. Let me just try and face today and that's, do the best I can. That's really powerful because that is something you kind of have to do if you've been through trauma, which is neglect or, you know, an austerity authoritarian parent or an absentee parent or all of those things or all that stuff is um you have to start questioning your first response emotional response to things you have to question that that thought that narrative in your head constantly until it's become you know this second this kind of you know second nature and you have to do that whenever it comes to your interpersonal relationships too, because you'll find yourself down that negative, paranoid, oh, they don't want to spend time with me. No, I, they don't want me to come over. I'm annoying. <laughs> Go on downer tangents. And, yeah. you know, like, yeah, and then, you know, like then the agoraphobia sets in. <laughs> <or> the... <laughs> I, I, I got so bad. Uh, at one point, I was hiding under my coffee table. Like, it was I couldn't even face reality, uh, mm -hmm. let alone the outside world. So yeah, yeah, it's but the nice thing is, right now I'm dealing with these two emotions, right? Which are joy and lament. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, joy in that I'm actually pretty healthy right now, like mentally, I'm doing well, physically, I'm doing well. Uh, I'm repairing a lot of relationships that have either been neglected or I've damaged. I'm right. establishing new relationships, all those things. The lament is for how bad and for how long things went, right? How, and also the hell I put myself into, right? Anytime I reach out to a comedian, they actually want to connect and talk with me or they're like, oh, dude, where you been? I missed you. It's mm -hmm. like, what? I'm sorry, that's not what was playing in my head for the past mm -hmm. who knows how long, right? And so it's trying to build that positive mental image of how people see me versus how I've seen myself for so long, right? That's, that's a weird reality to live in for a long time, right? Uh, and so every day waking up and just recalibrating, how do I think the world sees me? How does the world actually see me, you know? Mm -hmm. How do I see myself today? It, am I in a happy, positive light, or do I need to work on a couple of things to get there? Um, so yeah, it's a process. And what's fascinating is what you've kind of been talking about, the buzzword for what you've been talking about, what you've been doing for yourself over this period of time, they're calling it reparenting. Mm. And I think it's funny that I think it's fascinating that not only can you reparent yourself, but via psychedelics and the the oxygen-rich blood flow and the increased electrical activity in your brain is there are cognitive synapses that close over the period of your lifetime. And what we learn as children, unfortunately, is so detrimental to the rest of our life. Yeah. 
that psychedelics to a large degree is a lot like shaking up the snow globe on that trauma and those patterns of thinking and allowing the brain to again use parts of the brain that it only used when you were a child right yeah that's that's part of the psychedelic journey is that i want to take uh, i want to do it in not a clinical setting mm -hmm. but a quasi-clinical setting like somewhere know? like my like on the farm or something exactly right yeah like, you know, having people that understand one, who I am and what I'm trying to achieve, mm -hmm. and then two, have been through the experience and taken enough people mm -hmm. through the experience that they understand how to achieve that. Mm -hmm. um, because I've heard so many good things, right, mm -hmm. from so many people that I respect and, you know, know who have taken this journey and said it's helped, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so I just want to, and also just for the fact that I've come to a place in my life where my anxiety mm -hmm. is under control more right. or less. Right. Uh, and I've realized how many experiences in life I've passed up because of it, mm -hmm. where it's like, oh, no, I'm just not going to go right. do that because I really want to. That's the bitch of it. Right? It's, there mm -hmm. isn't a, a desire to do it, but I let the anxiety say no. Um, so now I'm saying, well, let's go experience all these things that you know we've said no to for no right. reason but also let's right. let's look at the things that people are telling you to say no to that you're reading up and realizing maybe you shouldn't be saying no to this maybe this could be beneficial right. for us so like not only is reparenting a great way of taking care of yourself and setting some kind of guidelines for making sure you're eating enough making sure you're getting bedtime, making sure you're going to a therapist and checking your inner thoughts. Because a good parent would hear a kid to be like, oh, I'm no good. I'm just, you know. Yeah. There was a song my mom used to literally sing to my foster mom used to sing to me when I'd be like boohooing about myself. And it was like something about going and staying under a rock and eating worms and being alone. And I was like, man, you are fucking heinous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, <laughs> and so reparenting is a huge gift that you can give yourself but the psychedelics in a safe setting with people that you trust and that can help you that have been there yeah um it's literally like a way of getting to heal your child brain yeah. like to literally get to heal that child part of you that is literally still part of your brain whenever you develop you have cellular turnover throughout your entire body where cells have certain lifespans and essentially like 97 percent of your body is new but yeah. like every so many cycles right except for some parts deep in the brain some mm -hmm. of your core memories some of your core thinking patterns and those typically stop developing like late childhood early you like puberty kind of closes that off right yeah you can actually send oxygenated blood and, and, and mineral rich blood and electrical activity to these parts again and almost re-stabilize re them and use new neuron pathways from the deepest parts of your brain outwards. Yeah. And use more of your brain because cortisol is a, is a neurotoxin mm -hmm. that you can pump into your brain 24 seven and it has a 12 hour half-life. Yeah. Um, one of the things that they think that one of the ways that they think that psychedelics is helping people is 
because of all that blood flow and because of all that electrical activity that it's flushing neurotoxins from the neurons. So you're actually, you know, outside of environment and situations, you're actually treating some of the underlying causes of depression and anxiety and disordered ways of thinking, which is everything from disordered ways of eating to disordered ways of thinking about yourself and the world around you. Yeah. Well, it's, um, you know, I get the comments a lot uh, because of how I look. They say, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I'm 37 and people are like, wait, you're in your 30s? Like, right. I, but I also attribute that a lot to my energy and the, okay. how I project. And part of that is I've been stuck in the mindset I was at when I was 16 for so long. Like uh, okay. a lot of trauma happened right around there and my brain's been stuck. Right. You were less curious and less... Well, more, more of a, like, how I saw myself at 16 and my view of the world kind of solidified in a trauma, right? Yeah. And so as a result, until I look in the mirror during the day, I still mm -hmm. imagine myself looking 16, right? right? Uh, and until I went through this recent experience with the hospitalization and the therapy and everything else... I didn't get out of that mindset. And right. more recently, I've been out of it. I'm like, oh my God, like that that's weird. But it's a new retraining of my reality. Like what what's actually going on? What am I actually experiencing? Right. Um, and the kicker for me is it's what do you want your life to be, right? Because right. for so long, I felt like my life was being dictated to me. Right. Like there were a set of societal and different expectations put on me. And if I didn't conform to those, I wasn't succeeding. Right. Um, and now I'm like, wait, I'm succeeding on my own terms. I'm doing exactly what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I'm a stand up comedian. I'm producing content. I'm doing all this stuff. I'm into a whole new avenue with cannabis and exploring it. Um, sure. There's no money right now, but. I'm still happy when I'm doing what I'm doing. Right. I'd rather be doing this for zero money than making the salary I was making with the job that I had. Right. Right. Cause that job, the uh, a psychologist sat me down when I was still at that job because I was having a mental breakdown daily. Mm -hmm. I was literally locking myself in a, a, an office and crying for periods during the day. Oh, right. Uh, and the, the therapist said, look, you either quit the job or you'll be dead by 35. Like you, it, it's not a matter of wanting to do it because you'll torture yourself to no end. You're great at that, mm. but you can't do it. Your brain won't handle that stress day in, day out for much longer. Well, um, you're trying to fit a model that was not designed for our generation. Our parents and our parents' parents, they gave this impression that you could work a full-time job, whatever it was, have a boss for 35 years and meet all of your needs. And that is just not fucking true. And then we're trying to fucking hammer a round peg in a square hole and it's not working. And they're telling you, take some pills. Yeah. I'll make it work. Well, and you're so, like. So somebody, uh, uh, somebody on Twitter that I follow just lost their job, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it, again, it wasn't a job. 
it wasn't a you're an employee of XYZ company. It's you're a creative contractor that we have and you missed a deadline. So here's a threatening letter to that extent in an email, right? Mm -hmm. Saying there are a million people waiting behind you for your position. So this is your first and only warning. So he quit. He said, fuck you guys. I don't need this shit. But the thing is, I read that and I had such a visceral, emotional, physical reaction because that's exactly how it felt when I was doing my last job. That's creating a toxic environment too. But, Are creatives but, supposed to create like that? But that's corporate 101 now, right? It's, we don't really need you. There's somebody else waiting. So if you decide to take a sick day, we can use that as an excuse to get rid of you. Right. Live with that fear over your head day in, day out, right? On top of your deadlines and everything else and projections you're trying to meet. And we're just setting everyone up for failure, for psychological breakdowns, for just all sorts of stuff. Um, like pipe, yeah. like mainlining them in, man. And, and even to the point where the competition is ridiculous, where I went on Fiverr the other day because mm -hmm. I was like, you know what? Let me try and make some money. I'll freelance for a bit. So let me see what other people are posting. And I was like, I can't compete in this. I just, it, the marketplace is already against me because I don't have all the bells and whistles that you have to pay for, mm -hmm. right? You have to pay a company so that you can make money trying to be a freelancer, mm -hmm. right? Or they won't promote your account or do the things that, and I was like, Jesus Christ, I left corporate America because I was tired of the artificial arbitrary rules being put in place by to social media platforms and mm -hmm. other advertisers we were using, which were just rigging the game against everybody, right? So now I see what's happening to cannabis in the space. And I'm going, okay, I'm actually going to fight this one. This is going to be the hill I die on, is cannabis right. being able to market the way cannabis should. Right. Um, because I actually believe in this cause. Right. It's something I consume, it's something I believe in. I believe it's a net benefit to the world, unlike all the shit I was marketing before where I kind of hated myself for marketing certain companies that I was marketing. And now I'm saying, okay, let me just do the greater good. Let me look for companies that are working with freeing prisoners, with doing all the things that we should be doing to make a more equitable free society. Um, let me work to get the education out there. Let me talk with experts in the field like yourself and show other people what's going on, right? And because I'm that kind of intermediary, I'm not thought of as a cannabis company i'm thought of as a comedian who's in cannabis right uh you know and so i can do that kind of talk to the people that are on the fence and bring them over mm -hmm. or at least educate them that hey it's not for me that's a big part of what i do is i tell people look if you have bad experiences with cannabis it might not be for you right, right. It, it, it's not a panacea we're not you know I'm not about to try and shove it down your throat like right. Budweiser, Anheuser, Bush, right? right. Uh, if you experience it, great. If you never touch it, great. I don't care. But let me at least tell you what it's all about. Right. That's my big thing. Great. And just even getting people on board with the idea that maybe the medical system, one, doesn't know entirely what they're doing, and two, is set up to make a huge profit. Oh yeah, it, and it's... you can't necessarily trust that. I'm not anti-medicine and I'm not anti-pill, yeah. but I am. Doctors need to do better that baseline tests before they just give people dangerous drugs. Well, what we're finding, you know, part of uh, 
one, I like to look at history with a kind lens, mm -hmm. you know, because recently there's been a lot of, for lack of a better term, hysteria, mm -hmm. reactionary, like, look at all the bad things we've done over the years. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'm not, I'm not denying that we've fucked up, well, let's say medical, we've fucked like, up in the medical say, arena. Yeah, like, like, like crazy project. Uh -huh. <laughs> but we're at a place where we're saying, okay, let's try and do better. Let's try and learn from the mistakes of the past. Let's try and figure out how to better prescribe and do things with patients. We have better diagnostics now. So let's start using them, mm -hmm. right? Um, the bitch of the problem, as you know, and anybody with two cents knows, is that it's inherently expensive to try and get a behemoth system like the American medical system up to snuff with where it actually should be, right? Mm -hmm. And Unfortunately, this comes back to the thing I hate talking about, which is politics. Mm -hmm. The will of politicians is bottom dollar driven. Mm -hmm. So until what, you know, study after study has shown, they realize that it's more conducive financially mm -hmm. to have preventative, real preventative treatment, ding, ding, ding. real recovery for uh, drugs and all other sorts of things, real outreach programs and less time programs. less time people missing work yeah i'm on medical bills less time in recovery less taxpayers on prescriptions absolutely. more more workers because mm -hmm. if you get people off of drugs and out of homelessness you have more workforce more tax revenue yeah but the problem is they still don't see it that way right they right. still see it as who can we squeeze how can we grease the palms who and it's it's unfortunate Right. right, because but, the more equanimous distribution of wealth means they're less wealthy. Yeah, and that's but, all they, they think about. Not that, not that they would still be ridiculously wealthy, and other people would be able to have, a, you know, a comfortable life, but yeah. they would just be less wealthy. And that's well, the th there's a fallacy of that if you provided everybody everything they needed, they wouldn't want to do anything. Right, right, and it's like, hey. I'm unemployed. I'm collecting a check right now, but I'm doing everything in my power to not collect that check anymore. And historically, that's never been the case. People who are supported can yeah. achieve more. Well, it's it's because I don't have the overhead of overhead right now to think about. <laughs> I can actually be creative. I can right. think of, I can imagine for myself, what do I want for my life? Where do I want to live? How do I want to make a living? You know, how do I want to make money? And so I just, you know, I think uh, the universal basic income argument is part of that, you know, just, and the thing is, it's not about, in my mind, caring for every single need. It's about base level shit. Right. right? Or at least alleviating a little bit. Because as you know, if I get a $15 an hour job tomorrow, I might as well be shooting myself in the foot because it's not enough money. I got to get three of those things lined up. Mm -hmm. Especially uh, in an area like where you live. Yeah. So it it's, um, you know, this is the double-edged sword that our generation is facing. You know, we've put ourselves in a financial quandary where the jobs we can get don't provide for us. And the jobs we want won't take us. Uh, <laughs> you have experience. Well, it's not even that. Uh, okay. So the whole tech influencing everything has destroyed everything because 
I have 15 years of experience in advertising and marketing. I was a director. I've been owner. I've had every title under the sun. I've worked with every platform you can think of. I've put myself in for jobs in marketing, entry-level jobs all the way up uh, recently, just as a test, see what could happen. A, I got blocked on a lot of things because I didn't have the right keywords in my resume. So it was already filtered out. Uh, two, every time I applied, I had to retype my resume into the fucking fields that they have because their system sucks. Yeah. Uh, and then I either I had too much experience, not <laughs> enough experience, the wrong type of experience. Uh, I was great, but could I be cheaper? It's like, you know, what do you want? Like, do you actually want the employee or not? Because I think they want our souls. Because I think at one point you just get so rich that it has to be about something other than money. Well, well I think part of the problem is it's the old uh, monkey push a button problem. Okay. Where if you can simplify the problem, the, the being any job down to a set series of tasks that could be accomplished by trained monkey pushing buttons, <laughs> uh, it's perfect. Right. And that's where a lot of the, the I get disheartened when I do look for jobs in marketing. Right. Let's say just, just as a reflex. It's like, I know I'm good at that. Let me look to see if I can still mm -hmm. do it. Every job description I read, it's you're going to be managing all this stuff, which is push button stuff. I'm on a computer all day typing things in the field, submitting things. And then running reports. All right. Okay, great. More Excel, fun. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we're going to hold you accountable to certain unobtainable goals based on that, right? And I'm going, okay, that's, you lost me, right? Actually, you lost me as soon as you said, I'm not going to be thinking for, at this job. I'm just going to be doing, mm -hmm. right? And I was like, all right, I can't do it anymore. That it's not the job for me. Let me the work with cannabis companies. For that, though. Yeah, but even let me work with cannabis companies and think them. outside the box. Even the monkeys and the research will kill themselves. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, and, but that's that's how we see it now. And with working from home and remote, oh my God, we've dehumanized the worker even more. Right. Right. Now they're they're just a faceless, you know, person on Zoom. Uh, but but True wealth in America isn't made by working, it's made by owning land. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's made by owning just anything. Uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, I, I'm in Vegas. Which, as Americans, we are landowners. So oh, the yeah. automated, automatic, in, the automatic adjusted in whatever income, I forget what that acronym is, but it makes sense that we we all should be getting it as civilians, as American citizens, once we hit certain ages, because we own the land that, you know, the Koch brothers are mining. Yeah. And we own the land where the oil rigs. And here in my county in Delta, Colorado, it's the Koch brothers that they don't own the mines they just pay several thousand dollars to the Bureau of Land Management to mine on it. They're mining on our land for next to nothing and they're paying no taxes. Well, it, it, it's the Saudi Arabia argument, right? If we've, you know, Saudi Arabia, everybody over there is a billionaire because they, they by birthright, and they invest a lot of that money into education they send their students worldwide but they also the invest it into other technologies for future things once petroleum no longer becomes right. a thing right they they're really progressive in a weird way uh, 
you know, it's there's a parliament. Yeah, well, but parliaments you know, saying... by nature are supposed to reflect that we don't have one. Yeah, we but the parliament since they've existed since we wrote our constitution and the UK wrote theirs was parliament more accurately represents the population of the people that they're representing. So there's more women and minority and more people that care about the environment they live in than the ultra billionaires that, yeah. you know, whatever. I have to- Yes, I, no, we've been going for a while. Get some it. work done. Yes, it was so wonderful getting to talk to you and getting to know you better. I really, um, I, it was really wonderful. And I just wish you the best of luck, man. I can't wait till I'm like, yo, I know him. Yeah. Well, I do want to come out and visit the farm at some point. That would be really wonderful. And, you know, obviously once the weather and stuff gets a little bit better and the COVID stuff will get better, um, I'd like to do some smaller retreats too so that, um, you know, small groups of like-minded, like three or four people, like-minded people or whatever can come out at a time. And then I like doing a little bit larger retreats with, with women and female, you know, she, her identifying or they, them identifying pronouns. Um, I, the couple, we work with couples and all kinds of stuff. It's been, it was not what I set out to do, but it's been like a really honestly wonderful, um, it's been a really cool experience. Yeah. Well, that's I. That's why I wanted to talk to you because I like sharing what you're doing with other people, that's especially cool. my female friends. Uh, because you know, I think what you're doing is very beneficial, just on the whole. And you know, also, uh, we I wanted to talk about it, but we didn't really touch on it too much. <laughs> but we we tourism is becoming a big thing, mm -hmm. and you're part of that. So right. I think we might we might have to do another chat. Uh, yes. you know, at some point to talk about that, especially if I can come out and visit. And I would love that because um, talking about, you know, people who want to get into the industry, into like the ancillary type businesses, type businesses, like having a best breakfast that's yep. kind of friendly and what that means. And... Exactly. So yeah, we definitely should talk about that. Yes. Thank you so much for time, for hanging out. It was so nice to, I was like, honest, I was nervous and excited because I was like, I get excited and I interrupt people and I haven't been socializing much lately. And I'm like, oh my God, please don't let me just be a rude asshole. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm the same. I, without the therapy every two weeks, I think I would just be a mile a minute. So yeah. And you know, and I wish that people had access to a version of therapy that I go to. Yeah. I see she was, she's actually a retired clinical therapist. I go to another local farm mm -hmm. and I can sit there on mushrooms or smoking a joint and talk to um my counselor in the ls clinical setting which just automatically helps me open up just oh, yeah. to get to the root of the problem without having to beat around the bush for as long about what's bothering me um because you know that clinical feeling yeah, yeah it's, it's, uh, it's terrible if you're not comfortable in this in the setting uh, setting an intention as mm -hmm. we talk about with psychedelics right mm -hmm. so yeah it's the same with therapy yeah, yeah, totally. Dealing with any of your, any, anything to do with the consciousness, setting an intention is huge. Yeah. Uh, it All was right. so nice. Yeah, uh, you, you, your face hair goes pretty quick, huh? You just shaved oh, yeah. the butt. Like, it looks, honestly, you, you look dapper either way, so I'm sure. Oh, thank you. Because you like, he's like, ooh. Well, I grew it back because right now it's cold, so my right. face doesn't do well in the cold, but as soon as I get warm, warm again, I'll probably shave it off. 
Well, honestly, you can rock it either way. I, yeah, I got to do something about this because this is getting a little out of control. <laughs> you have beautiful hair. Oh, thank you. All right, it was so good. Thank you so much, sweetie. Thank you. Right. <laughs> I'm gonna save this video so everyone can see it. Yes, and I'll put I'll repost it on my YouTube. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Great. Thank uh -huh. you. Bye.